Thank you so much, Rex and Jean Allen. And uh, Rex, I know on behalf of the whole congregation, myself would express our condolences and also rejoice with you in the victory the Lord has given your your mom. And it's, uh, that was beautiful uh, sharing today. And um, so um, keep him in prayer. And also uh, with Wendy Fields, with her loss of her dad, keep these uh, people in, in prayer. And uh, when you pray for them, I know that uh, Wendy's dad was a believer, like Rex's mom. You know, the, when the opportunity comes now, uh, people who are not saved in their periphery are going to come to the funeral or the wake, whatever they do. And uh, this is an opportunity to evangelize them. And so uh, just keep that, that both families in your prayers so that, uh, that the people who need Jesus are told about him. <clears throat> and also those who are believers that uh, might need to be uh, a little pick-me-up, that they'll be, uh, they'll be uh, motivated to uh, persevere and get, and get back in the ballgame. And, uh, and for those who are doing what they're supposed to be doing and they're faithful Christians, that this would be undeserved suffering for blessing and they're experiencing the joy and the comfort like Rex is right now, knowing that his mom is absent from the body face-to-face -face with the Lord. And uh, he told me a cool, I'll let him tell you if he wants to, he told me a cool story about his, uh, his mom and his dad and, and how they went in their sleep. It was so pretty, so beautiful. So I'm going to get all choked up. <laughs> all right, so... All right, uh, let's, uh, let's take that moment of silent prayer that we do for the message. Uh, and as we go into our second session, we'll be looking at Habakkuk 2.16, which uh, teaches us that the Babylonians will experience shame rather than honor because of the Lord's judgment. And not only are we going to pray for the offering, but uh, pray for the, uh, the message, but also, gonna, as we do, pray for the offering. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity that you've given to us, that we could express our loving gratitude for you, your son, Jesus Christ, and what you've done for us in the past, are doing for us now, and will do for us in the future, not only with providing us, giving us unmerited blessings according to your grace, but also uh, logistical grace blessings and the food, shelter, clothing, the homes that we live in, the salaries that we have. Uh, we just think that, uh, thank you for all these things. We know that all that we have, including this love gift that we're about to present to you, uh, that comes from the heart, uh, we know that that comes from you too, Father. All the silver and the gold is yours. You're the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills. So we thank you for the blessings materially that you've given to us. And we just pray that this love gift would be a blessing uh, to your people, but bring glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. And I also pray, Father, for... Rex and his family at this time, and Wendy and hers, as they go through the grieving process of the loss of their loved ones, Rex with his mom, and also with Wendy with her dad. And I just uh, pray, lift up both families, that, uh, that the loss of these two believers would uh, be used by you, not, would not be in vain, but be used by you to uh, show them, other people in their periphery that uh, are grieving, uh, their need for the Savior, those who are not Christians yet. And for those who are believers who have not been faithful and backsliding, that this will be an opportunity to motivate them to take whatever time they have left on this earth to bring glory to you and learn and, and put into practice your word. And for those who have been faithful, 
that this is an undeserved suffering, blessing that you've given to them, and give them comfort as they uh, go through this grieving process, and give them comfort to know that they're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, and that there's a great reunion that's coming, and with the rapture, the resurrection of the church. So we also pray uh, for the message. We pray, Father, that uh, you'd help uh, myself again to uh, pre present the message here in the second session. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a very intimidating and a daunting task, Father, to, to communicate your word to your people where this book was written centuries ago, but I know with the gift of the Holy Spirit, he can bridge the gap uh, between the length of time from where we are in history and to all the way back in the seventh century BC with Habakkuk. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would empower me uh, to bring forth your full counsel in this second session with regards to Habakkuk 2.16. I pray that the, the message of bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ, I pray it would uh, minister to your people, not only us as individuals, but also all of us as a corporate unit. I also pray that you would help your people. I pray the Spirit would work mightily and powerfully through them again. And uh, understanding and concentrating and carefully considering what we're going to be noting here in the second session in order to make personal application, Father. And not only to their own personal situation, but what's going on in the world today and uh, give them comfort and, and, uh, and encouragement knowing that you control history who, through your son, Jesus Christ, who sits at your right hand. He rules and he's the king of, over the kings of the earth, lord of over the lords of the earth, and that uh, we're in union with him. And so whatever happens in this world, we're on the side that wins, and we should be comforted by that because we're the bride of Christ and we're going to reign with your son for a thousand years on this earth. So give comfort to your people. And yes, we must go through many trials and tribulations in the devil's world. And this world must continue to go through trials and wars and rumors of war right up to the second advent of your son when he'll bring to an end all war and all evil empires. And so we pray, Father, for uh, this uh, message that it would, bring, again, bring glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ, ministering to your people, bringing glory to the, your son and, and through the power of the Spirit. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I said before the opening prayer, uh, we're going to be looking at Habakkuk 2.16 here in the second session, which teaches us that the Babylonians will experience shame rather than honor because of the Lord's judgment. Again, this is uh, the proclamation of a, a prophecy that the Lord gave Habakkuk, and uh, in response to Habakkuk's complaint of his choice for the Babylonians to, to, uh, to discipline the apostate citizens of the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, so we see that uh, it's a, a big description of the Babylonians here. And what's interesting, they were a, a, the superpower of the world at that time. And they only reigned for about 66 years. But they were an enormous power. And they did things militarily and politically that nobody had ever seen up to that time. They, though they were an evil empire. And remember, we've been bringing out this in the past many times, all the way back to the Jude series when I first got here, that all the kingdoms of the earth are under the power of the devil right now. It, he is Satan, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, is the God of this world. 1 John 5.19, the entire world is under his power. He deceives the entire world. Revelation chapter 12. So, he's the temporary God of this world. How did he get into that position? The fall of Adam. Remember Adam and Eve, it was told to them in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, you shall rule over the works of God's hands. However, now we see Satan's the God of this world ever since that fall in the Garden of Eden. Now, God is doing a mighty work, and we are part of that mighty work. 
Because when he sent his son to the cross, when he was crucified, when he died, when he was buried, when he was raised and seated at the Father's right hand, that was the first step in restoring humanity over the, rule, over the rulership of planet Earth. And every time one of us believes in Jesus Christ as Savior, through the baptism of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit places us in union with Christ and makes us, identifies us with Christ in those events in his life, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session to the right hand of the Father. You are in union with him. You're members of his body. He's the head. We're the members of the body. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And we will reign over this earth for a thousand years. And Satan will no longer be the ruler of this world. We're designed to dispossess him and his angels. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6.3 says, we will judge angels the church, and he was talking to a group of Christians in Corinth that exactly were not exactly in spiritual maturity, as we pointed out. So this is a tremendous thing that we are going to reign over the works of God's hands. The very fallen, the fallen angels that are deceiving the nations, you know, it's interesting that when the millennial reign comes, Satan's in prison for a thousand years. There's no more war. There will be no more war. There'll be no imperialistic empires. There'll be no empires like uh, Medo-Persia. There'll be no more empires like Medo, uh, Babylon. No more empires like Alexander the Great and the, Alex the Greek Empire under his four generals that succeeded him. No more Roman empires. There'll be no more Pax Americanas or uh, Pax Romana. There'll be none of those. There'll be no Chinese empire, no Russian empire, no British empire. There'll be no, there'll be only one name over this earth, and you and I are part of that. That's exciting. So you are the solution to the problem that this world has. Wherein the, the world is the way it is, because it's enslaved to the devil and his world system that deceives the entire world. And the whole world is enslaved, enslaved to the sin nature that we all came to the world with at the moment of physical birth the father imputed Adam's sin to us in the garden from the garden of Eden he imputed it to each one of us Romans 5 12 through 21 teaches us that so we commit sins by we're sinners by nature and practice but every sin that we have committed was imputed this is every sin in human history past present and future was imputed or credited to Christ on the cross and he suffered the consequences of what we did by giving into the sin nature and the temptations of the devil in his world system so we have the victory. We're more than conquerors, Paul said in Romans 8. Yes, we must go through trials and tribulations because the, the gospel proclamation is a, is a condemnation to the devil. It's an, every time we proclaim the gospel here and every church in America and around the world that does this and it talks about what Paul's talking about in Ephesians, that the mystery doctrine for the church age where Gentile and Jewish believers are fellow heirs and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Part of the new humanity, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So God's doing something about the problem right now as we speak. So just like God told Habakkuk in the cha first chapter, wait for it. We must believe this. We must have faith God's word says it. We can hang, his, hang our hats on it. The Bible, he, there's so, many, so much fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. Somebody asked me, why do you believe the Bible is inspired by God? By God? Fulfilled prophecy. Just Jesus in his first advent fulfilled over 300 prophecies. I got an article on our website that goes through these many of these. So if he did that, the book of Daniel is filled with prophecies everywhere. 
Habakkuk, this book has been fulfilled in history except for the final chapter which talks about the tribulation period and the second advent of Christ. So you and I know what's going to happen. God's led. You know, one of the reasons why God wants us to know prophecy, he wants you to know what's coming. Wouldn't you tell your children, if you had, when you're you're a parent, don't you tell your children what's to come, you know, in life, and you know you try to prepare them for life? Our Heavenly Father wants us to be prepared and give us encouragement because he knows we're having a tough time of it, and he wants us to have encouragement knowing that we're going to be reigning over this earth. He wants us to be encouraged that I'm going to take you out of this world and save you from the wrath to come that's coming on this world, a Christ-rejecting world, and all the empires of the world will bow to Jesus one day. He laughs at him. Psalm 2 talks about that. Listen to me. He's making his enemies a footstool for his feet, the father is, his son's feet, because he's going to reign. And that people, we're the bride. He's doing it for us too. So we're reading something here about a fallen world in a fallen empire that's under the deception of Satan, just like our own nation and Russia and China and every nation that's ever existed. There's only one nation that has an elect angel ruling over it, and that's Michael over Israel. That doesn't mean Israel is what Israel's supposed to be. They're unregenerate. There's a small remnant of Jews in the church age that are believers, the Messianic Jews. But most of them have rejected their Messiah. That's going to change at the second advent when we come back with Christ. There'll be a national regeneration and restoration of the nation of Israel back in the land and there'll be the dry bones passage. In Ezekiel 37, will be fulfilled. They haven't got the breath of eternal life breathed into them. Okay? They're a bunch of dry bones over there right now. This, if this is the rapture generation, that could be what we're talking about, fulfillment. They might be the generation. We don't know. So why does God need elect angel over that? Because Satan knows. The, the Bible better than some Christians, most Christians. He knows who's going to rule, and he doesn't like it, and he's going to fight. Well, why is he going to fight? You know he's going to lose. No, he doesn't think he's going to lose. He's going to do whatever he can, think he can. He's arrogant. He's, he's, this is his, he's on his dying bed here, dying breath, okay? He's coming to his Waterloo, too, with a Gog-Magog revolution after his brief uh, uh, release from prison. So be encouraged, people. We need to learn lessons about this, about how God deals with the nations. And his, we're learning about his character and his nature and that he's a holy and righteous God. But he also is a God who loves, who sent his son to the cross to, to save the people of the nations and to save the citizens of these nations, including our own, that are enslaved to sin and Satan and his cosmic system. So we got the message to help those people. We have the solution to the world's problems, the gospel is. The gospel changed everything. You want to talk about problems with the races? Guess what? Anybody who believes in Jesus Christ as Savior through the baptism of the Spirit, whether you're an African-American or you're Chinese or you're, you're Anglo-Saxon, whatever you are, whatever race you are, if you believe in Jesus, guess what? New humanity, goodbye racism. Only the baptism of the Spirit, only the gospel could do that. Not a law, not a social program. It doesn't change. Wars, they have wars over these things. No, God's done it with the baptism of the Spirit. And we're going to see it perfected in a resurrection body. Read Revelation chapters 4 and 5. You have all the nations, every ethnicity, language group, black, white, Chinese, Asian, every, everybody worshiping Jesus on his throne. That's what's to come, people. 
We have the solution to all these problems. All the problems of war, of murder, rape, sexual immorality, alcoholism, drug abuse, you name it, political, uh, political intrigue, the, the conspiracies, assassinations, all the garbage that we read about in the newspapers, all attributed to one thing, sin. We're all sinners by nature and practice. Satan and his cosmic system. And the gospel is about Jesus' victory over those things, including death. So rejoice when we look at these things. Don't get discouraged. Put it in perspective. That's why I'm saying this, so you, so you don't think that this is just some kind of negative thing I'm going off on here. No, it's, it's to teach us, instruct us, and also encourage us to know that we're part of the solution here. Okay? So, look at it back at chapter 2 with that introduction out of the way. Look at, we'll read the whole chapter like we did in the first session, and we're going to look at verse 16 for, after that for the rest of the way. Habakkuk 2 1, I will stand at my watch, Habakkuk says, and station myself on the ramparts, and I will look to see what he will say to me, speaking of God, of course, and what answer I'm to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the Babylonian in context is puffed up, arrogance. His desires are not upright, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He's arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave. And like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion? How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, Babylon? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you, Babylon, will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood, for you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire and that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him! who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame and state of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands, and cities, and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol, since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies? He who makes it trusts in their own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. 
but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Boy, I really like that last line. Let all the earth be silent before him. That's so cool. It's so cool. It's, it's like, kind of like Clint Eastwood, but it's God, right? He's better than Clint Eastwood, right? Make my day. Be silent. I'm, I'm up here on the throne. Habakkuk 2.16. You will as a certainty. This is my translation of verse 16. You will as a certainty experience shame to its full extent instead of honor. All of you drink so that all of you expose your uncircumcision. The cup from the Lord's right hand will be coming against you, resulting in shame to replace your honor. So, verse 16, which we just read, in my translation of the NIV, it's continuing the Lord's response to Habakkuk and his argument against his choice of the Babylonians to discipline the apostate citizens of the southern kingdom of Judah. And this argument is recorded in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1, as we pointed out. Now, God's response begun, begins, as we saw in verse 2 of chapter 2, it ends in verse 20, as we just saw. And these verses, 2 through 20, are presenting the Lord's decision to judge the Babylonian Empire in the future for their unrepentant, sinful behavior. Now, specifically, he's going to judge them because of the evil treatment of those nations they conquered in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world at the end of the 7th century B.C. and the beginning of the 6th century B.C. Now, verse 16 is continuing also to describe the fourth of five woes. This is a continuation of the fourth woe that appears, this fourth woe appears, of course, in verses 2 through 20, and verse 16 is continuing to describe the woe here, the fourth one. And like the first three, this fourth woe, or we could say this disaster, literally, is directed at the Babylonians for their unrepentant, cruel treatment of the citizens of the various nations of the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world. Now, it's directed against them because of their unrepentant, sinful behavior. It's something they didn't stop doing. Listen to me. When Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah 51, which echoes, we read it one day, so, I'd read it again, but it's so long, it'd take me a half hour. Right? So it echoes chapter 2, as we saw. And you know what he tells them? Read it in Babylon. Read this prophecy in Babylon. And this is at the height of their power. That would be like someone going into the United States of America today and saying, hey, you're destroyed. You don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. That's exactly what they did. A superpower, Babylon. They got this dark proclamation. Same thing, same thing God gives Habakkuk here was given to Jeremiah, his contemporary. Basically, Babylon, you're done. Now, this is what we call a conditional prophecy. They didn't repent, though. They didn't take it. What do I mean by conditional prophecy? This is the book of Jonah. And Jonah, remember Jonah chapter 3? In 40 days, Nineveh, you will be destroyed. He didn't say, oh, if you believe in the, you know, repent, stop what you're doing. And believe. He didn't want to tell them that. He said, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. They got the message. Now, why did God say 40 days? If he really wanted to destroy them, he could just wipe them out right there. I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to give them any forewarning. The fact that God sends them in there and tells them 40 days, and the fact that God uses Habakkuk and then Jeremiah to tell Babylon, I'm going to destroy you. Did Babylon get the cue? Well, the Ninevites did in Jonah's day, and they repented in sackcloth and ashes, starting with the king. But that never happened to Babylon. If you read Daniel chapter 5, we studied that. Belshazzar, who is with his father, the co-regent over Babylon, the great-grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who knew about Daniel and knew about these prophecies, 
He didn't repent. He was having a drinking party, having a little fun with his girlfriends and his concubines and his wives and everything else he had, doing all the booze he could do with all his nobles. He, they didn't repent. They didn't repent. And so that's the, that's the, that's the great tragedy. So, but God, he's giving them an opportunity to repent. That's why he says, wait for this. Wait for this to be fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled. It, was, it turns out it was 66 years later. Why wait? Because God loves every human being on the face of the earth, no matter how wicked they are, including Hitler. Wouldn't it be a shock? I don't think it's true, but you never know. Then you get there, and there's Joe Stalin, and there's Adolf Hitler. What would you do? How did you get in here? And he's going to go, how did you get in here? I'll tell you how I got in here. I got in here believing Jesus is Savior. <laughs> you would say, I can, you, you know, heaven is going to be an amazing place. Because there'll be people we expect to be there. Oh, they were a nice person. No, this doesn't mean you're going to get into heaven because you're a nice person. Okay? No one measures up to God's perfection. God demands perfection. But I'm not perfect. I know. That's why God sent the Son who's perfect. Because we can't be perfect. So, who, so God wants everyone to get saved. He doesn't want to judge them. Anytime you teach these books, you've got to always remember that. You know, people talk about, you know, the Old Testament. They're judging God. Let me tell you, I take it, I'll take you to Revelation and Second Peter and other passages in the Bible and Matthew. The New Testament, there's a God of judgment there. There's no grace in the Old Testament, no love. Are you kidding me? Read the book of Jonah. It's considered by many scholars as the, John, the gospel of John of the Old Testament. God, there's grace and love all over the place. The Levitical sacrifices were basically the expression of God's love and grace and forgiveness. Okay? All of it. God is the same God of the New Testament. It's the same God of the Old Testament. His grace and love, judgment, righteousness, holiness. In both books, it's the same God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we see in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 16, it contains two prophetic statements and two commands, which were all fulfilled in human history through the Medo-Persian Empire and her allies, conquering Babylon and absorbing her people and customs into its empire in 539 B.C. Now remember, the book of Daniel predicts this. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, it talks about the times of the Gentiles, which we're in now. We see the Medo, he predicted that Babylon would come to power, followed by Medo-Persia, followed by Alexander's Greece, and then the Roman Empire. And there's a final stage of the Roman Empire that's yet future, which is going to be a United States of Europe. There's going to be a Roman dictator. That's why. Don't tell me. The Romans, Rome's nothing. What were we, what were we 30 years ago? Well, excuse me, 300 years ago. What were we as a country? We're a bunch of farmers. Massachusetts farmers, okay? Come on. We're out there shooting squirrels for crying out loud. And we became an empire with a, a nuclear bomb, the most incredible, powerful nation in the face of the earth. I mean, there's, there's weapon systems out there. I saw an identified flying object. I got my camera on it. It won't jump on my camera. Don't tell me they don't have crazy technology out here with stealth technology. I can't even see the guys when they're flying around sometimes when I have my camera on them. Maybe you guys know something you don't want to tell me. Good. But this stuff, I was talking to this guy in the Pentagon. We're insane. That was what we, we used to be, nothing. Don't tell me God can't raise up Rome again. He can put Humpty Dumpty together again. And he's going to. Okay? So, Habakkuk 2.16 contains these two prophetic statements. And 
we see that there, we have two commands. So the two commands are sandwiched between the two prophetic statements. And the first prophetic statement, as we read, the Lord God of Israel solemnly asserts that the Babylonians will, as a certainty, experience shame to its fullest extent instead of honor. The word of shame in the Hebrew is kaon, and it describes the future state of the Babylonians experiencing as, nation, as a nation a state of dishonor, ignominy, infamy among the nations in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world. What does the world look at Babylon now today? Back in the day, they were feared, they were honored. People honored them because they were fear, afraid of them. What do we think of them today? Now the wicked empire, pagans. What will, what, will the, what will the people of the future think about our country someday? Thus the word speaks of the Babylonians possessing a low status among these nations and public disgrace with the associated feelings of shame. The word for honor, kavod, it pertains to the Babylonians experiencing a state of being highly respected or revered among the nations in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world. Thus the word speaks of attributing high status to the Babylonians as a people. However, the prepositional phrase that is modifying it, mikavod, which means instead of honor, it marks a contrast between the citizens of the Babylonians experiencing shame to its fullest extent as, na as a nation and experiencing glory or honor as a nation. Thus it indicates that although they experience honor among the nations back in the Bacchus day, this will not be the case in the future, but rather they'll experience shame instead. Now, this first prophetic statement in verse 16, as I said, is followed by two commands. The first command is emphatic, and it required that the Babylonians drink. What the Babylonians were to drink, what they were to drink from, is not explicitly mentioned here in the command. However, we have this, uh, we have a, this prophetic statement is uh, modified by the phrase, Tisov halacha kos yemen, Adonai. You can pronounce it uh, Yahweh, but the Jews don't pronounce it uh, Yahweh, they use Adonai. So this is translated, the cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you. And it indicates that the Lord wants the Babylonians to drink the cup from his right hand, which speaks of experiencing the Lord's wrath. So this is indicated by the fact that the cup is used in Scripture for experiencing God's wrath, which speaks of his righteous indignation. Every time you see this word wrath of God, it speaks of his righteous indignation. What do I mean by that? He's right and just to be angry at the world for its sin. And it's unrepentant behavior. He did something about sin. There's no reason why any race should experience the wrath of God now or in the future. He did everything to take it out of the way. Why would people experience it? Because they choose volitionally, no. I will be like my father, the devil, John 8, 44, and I will do what I want to do independently of God. I don't care about his laws. I will do whatever I want and love whatever I want and have sex with whoever I want and do drugs and alcohol. I'll do everything else. I'll murder people. I don't care. They're going to go and face the wrath of God, and they chose it for themselves, not what God wanted, not what God wanted. Don't tell me that God loves to destroy people in the lake of fire and get, have them suffer, yet conscious torment for all of eternity. There's not annihilation. How do we know? The false prophet and the antichrist. 
at, when Christ comes back in the second advent, he throws them alive in the lake of fire. When the, trip, when the millennial reign is over and the devil is thrown in there, they're still alive. Don't tell me that hell is not conscious, etern- uh, 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 conscious suffering of the wrath of God forever in the lake of fire. We have a little glimpse of what that might mean. Jesus on the cross, he was abandoned by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he suffered the torture of the crucifixion. He had two scourging. They gave him two scourgings because they felt bad for him, the Romans. And they wanted to kill, they figured they'd kill him before he get, had to suffer the crucifixion, which is the most insidious form of torture in the ancient world. The Persians came up with it, and the Romans perfected it. He did that. Now, how would you feel if you sent your only son to suffer the wrath of God for your enemies, and your enemies say, nah, I don't want him. I'm going to do my own thing. What would you do? Wouldn't the right, wouldn't the right thing be, you should be pretty upset. Well, what do you think God's feeling right now? Nobody talks, thinks about how God feels. It's his, it's his water. It's his air. It's the, he, every, our entire existence, we're held together by a word of his power, and they shake their fist at him? Holy moly. The God, the Israel, the God of Israel's wrath refers to his righteous indignation, which refers to his legitimate anger towards evil and sin. Why? Because both the contrary to his holiness or perfect character and nature, the reference to the Lord's right hand here in Habakkuk 2.16 is often used in Scripture for his divine power, his omnipotence, which is one of the characteristics of the divine essence. The Father is omnipotent, Mark 14.36, Luke 1.37, the Son is, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, Hebrews 1, 3, and the Spirit has omnipotence, Romans 15, 13. So therefore, the first command in verse 16 required that the Babylonians experience the Lord's wrath, his righteous indignation, by means of his divine power, which would manifest itself, listen to me carefully, how would God's power be manifested? It would be manifested through the exercise of the military power of the Medo persians and her allies. Remember what I told you. Adonai Savaot, or Yahweh Savaot. It's translated in your Bibles, Lord Almighty. Many translations, like the Net Bible, it's Lord who rules over all. I translate the Lord ruling over the armies, angelic and human armies, our American empire, our American army in World War I and World II. World War II was used by God to express his power to defeat the, the German empire. Hitler and Nazism and the, 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 Jap- the Empire of Japan. That's right. He rules over the armies. That should be another comforting thing for us to know and understand. While this world goes through its trials and tribulations, we know that our God is in control of everything. Nothing is happens by accident or chance. Everything is in the divine decree. Every decision, past, present, and future, of every person, of every nation, every leader, was already known about by God from his, omni, his omniscience. He knows both the actual and the possible. Isn't that comforting? He knows that, and he already had his plan. He said in the divine decree that my sovereign will will coexist with the free will of human beings and angels. We got it all. He's got it all under control. Nothing happens by accidents and chance. There's no, there's, he, there's nothing he doesn't know about. He wasn't shocked by Satan's fall. He wasn't shocked by Adam and Eve's fall. And he's not shocked by your sin or my sin or the sin of the Russians or the Chinese or the Americans or whatever. Nobody's surprising God. 
He's always the greatest chess player of all time. Okay? He already knows. And he's got a plan already worked out. And he's working it to perfection. That's right. Nobody's getting away with anything. Nations, just like human beings, are held accountable for their behavior, so are the nations. So, the reference to this right hand again, remember, speaks of the Lord's power. Now, the second command in verse 16 presents the result of the first. And it required that the Babylonians literally expose the fact that they were uncircumcised in contrast to the Jews who are circumcised. Thus, they were to experience shame as a result of exposing the fact that they're uncircumcised. In other words, it indicates that the Babylonians will literally experience the shame of being naked before their enemies, just as they forced, as we saw in verse 15, their enemies to experience the shame of being naked when they were conquered and imprisoned and enslaved. The second prophetic statement in verse 16 solemnly asserts that the cup from the Lord's right hand will be coming against the Babylonians, resulting in shame to replace their honor. The word cup there, kos in the Hebrew, it's used here in a figurative sense, speaking of the Babylonians experiencing the Lord's wrath, which again speaks of his righteous indignation, and as a result, experiencing judgment from the Lord. So this cup is used in Scripture. The use of the cup in Scripture is found many other places in both Old and New Testament for the wrath of God. So, the Lord's right hand, again, it speaks of his power. Yamin is the word in the Hebrew. It's used in a figurative sense or metaphorical sense for the Lord's omnipotence. So every time you see this word, right hand of the Lord, in the Old Testament, it's speaking of his power, his omnipotence. And so therefore, this second prophetic statement in verse 16 is solemnly asserting that the cup from the Lord's right hand will be coming around to and against the Babylonians so that they experience his wrath just as the other nations they conquered experienced his wrath through their military power, the Babylonians. So this use of the right hand for God's omnipotence, again, appears in both Old and New Testament. Exodus 15, 6. He destroyed, he's done this throughout history. He destroyed that great empire of the Egyptians. Moses was next in line. He would have married Pharaoh's daughter. He turned that down, as it says in Hebrews, because he wanted to suffer with God's people. And he eventually ruled over God's people. But God's mighty power were those plagues that we see in the first 12 chapters of Exodus wiped out the Egyptian empire and it was known throughout the world there was nothing left of them. They were a shell of themselves. And it didn't take long for that to happen. And just as, the, just as that God did that, he could easily do that to us if we don't wake up as a nation. Thus, you should have motivation to pray for the non-Christian in your, in your periphery. You have a responsibility. I do. And the first step is living the spiritual life. Show them Jesus by the way you do your job. You love the Lord. You, you do your job as under the Lord. You raise your kids as under the Lord, according to the teaching of the Lord. You love your wife like Christ loved the church. You, wives, you obey your husbands and all things is under the Lord. And everything that we do in the Christian community should be done to honor the Lord. When we practice the command, love one another. John 13, 34. Didn't Jesus say, by this, you will know, people will know you're my disciples? Then they see the attractiveness and the loveliness of Jesus. 
in us. That's what the country needs. That's the only thing that's going to save the country. Not politics. You hear politicians, you saw my song last week, politicians will say, I'm going to make America great again. I thought it was great in the past before, you know, now you're going to make it great again. Well, this present administration is not making it great. Okay, we're still a great nation regardless of who's the president. Because look, last time I looked, we got a military that's second to none. And we still have some people in this country that love their country that are patriots and not wacko. Okay? So we're not, we're not, we're not no great anymore. We're still great, but we're in, we're in trouble here. And our job as Christians is to be intermediaries for the people that are around us that are not Christians and pray for your leaders. Didn't Paul say in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, pray for your leaders. Why? God desires all people to be saved. And you want to live a tranquil life? Then pray for your leaders. I'm not going to, if I hear a Christian say, I'm not going to pray because President Biden is a Democrat. I don't like his policies. You idiot. That's right. You heard me say you're a fool. You're in violation of the word of God. Doesn't God desire all people? Didn't he die for Biden on the cross? Like you? Come on. Don't you ever say that. You owe it to your country to pray for him. And everybody in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or whatever party you don't like, independent, libertarian, what is this? We are on a different level, people. We, we, pray, we should have prayed for everybody. That's, our, that's the greatest thing we could do for our country. Because as I said before, isn't the gospel the solution? Yes. We want them to receive the gospel and be delivered from the tyrant that's ruling this world, the devil. So therefore, we're coming to the end here. Notice in Habakkuk 2.16 that the first prophetic statement and the second, contrast, honor, and shame. The world of the Bible is honor and shame. Honor and shame cultures. In fact, some of you military people, you might have recalled in different parts like Pakistan, India, Afghanistan, there's an honor-shame culture in those places. We're not like that. Americans are not like that. There's no shame with many people with some of the behaviors. There's some of the things that they post on Facebook. I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean, I don't need to know every little thing that you're having for dinner or the things that you're doing. I don't care. Get a life. I mean, there's got to be something wrong with these people who got nothing better to do than go on Facebook day and, and, and do selfies. I mean, isn't that the epitome of being so self-absorbed? And selfie here is like, you know, look what I'm doing. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm having sex with her and I'm, I'm, I'm making dinner. I don't care. I don't care what you're doing. Who, who, who said I wanted to see your personal life? Some of these people are out of their mind. No shame at all. But in the ancient world, they cared about those things. There was things as honor and shame. So we see that both of these verses, about, uh, both these uh, statements, prophetic statements that we see in verse 16, that contrast honor and shame, they both emphasize with Habakkuk and the rest of the faithful remnant of Judah. Remember, they had a faithful remnant there. And he's reminding them, he's emphasizing with them, that the honor that the Babylonian people enjoy now in their day would no longer be the case. The Babylonians received honor among the nations because they were conquered by, uh, by them and they, they feared them. However, the Lord is predicting here that the Babylonians would experience shame among these exact same nations in the future. These two prophetic statements, people, and the commands in verse 16 were all fulfilled. 
by the Babylonians being conquered by the Medo-Persians and her allies in 539 B.C. In fact, all of the prophetic statements which appear in verses 6 through 17 of this chapter were fulfilled in history when the Medo-Persian Empire invaded Babylon and overthrew Belshazzar as recorded in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. The Babylonian Empire was plundered by the Medo-Persian Empire and her allies, and the fall of Babylon was sudden and, and as predicted. It was a calamitous event. Nobody saw it coming. Only those who were informed by the word of God, they knew it was coming like Habakkuk, like Jeremiah, like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like Ezekiel, then you, you should not be shocked when great nations fall because you were told in advance by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Were you not? History states that Babylon fell on the 16th day of the Jewish month of Tishri, which corresponds to our October 11th or 12th 539 B.C. Daniel 5, as I said, states that Belshazzar was the co-regent with his father, Nebuchadnezzar, and he was the ruler of the empire when it was defeated by Medo-Persia, and they were taken by surprise. Herodotus records it, the great historian. He records it. They went underneath the city. They didn't fire a shot. They stopped, the, they got in there, stopped the water flowing through, and they came in underneath the city, and they took everybody by surprise. They were totally stunned. The prophecy in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 4 through 20, of Babylon's demise was first published in 605 B.C. and fulfilled in 539 B.C. Therefore, the fulfillment of the prophecy did not take place until approximately 66 years after Habakkuk received this prophecy from the Lord. In 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire was conquered, plundered, absorbed into Medo Persia and her allies. And the fulfillment of this chapter, chapter 2 of Habakkuk, demonstrated that what Babylon did to other nations was done to her. It, her punishment corresponded to the, the, the crimes that she committed against humanity. It wasn't just a military action that they did these things. It was total war. They murdered innocent civilians, raped men, women, children. They were butchers on the lines of someone like Hitler's Nazi Germany. In other words, the punishment of the Babylonians fit their crimes they committed against God and other nations. And this principle is what we call and in and, and, and the study of the Bible, lex teleonis is the Latin expression, the law of retribution. Therefore, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 20, 2 through 20, teaches us that God not only holds individuals accountable for their conduct, but also nations. And may this nation and the nations around the world today, may they heed the warning that the message of Habakkuk gives us here in the, all the way back from the 7th century B.C. Oh, if we would just listen to what God the Holy Spirit saying to that great prophet. Thank you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. 
We pray this lesson be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory and honor to you, Father, who governs and rules the nations through your Son, Jesus Christ, who sits at your right hand. We thank you for giving us the victory over sin and Satan and avoiding eternal wrath through faith in your Son and placing us in union with your Son and identifying with us with him in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at your right hand. And we're going to reign with your Son over a thousand years and dispossess the tyrants that rule this world now that are deceiving the nations. And, oh, Father, we lift up... We lift up our hearts and prayers to you and thoughts about our nation, our America, the nation that we love and many of us in this room have fought for and died for. I just pray, Father, that you impress upon your people to pray for this nation and their leaders, and I pray that you would expose the people in our government, executive, judicial, legislative branches of our federal, state, and local governments, and the people around our country, all 50 states. Expose them to the gospel. And I pray that you would raise up, in addition to the people that we have in the church that are faithful, that they would be intermediaries and interceding for their nation and their leaders at this time so that we might avoid, at this time, your wrath, that we know it's coming to our nations and all the nations around the world with the tribulation events. So, Father, we pray for this in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, your Son's name. We pray for these things. Amen. And you're dismissed.